Several agencies will get a part of $155 million from the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council. The money is aimed at helping agencies improve how they review and decide on applications for infrastructure construction. Details now from the council's executive director, Eric Badel. Mr. Badel, good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's great to be here. And since we spoke, I guess it was in July, a lot of progress has happened. Tell us about this $155 million. I guess it's part of a larger amount that you will be granting later on. But where did it go and what will it be used for? So the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed included $350 million for the Permitting Council to improve overall efficiency, timeliness, and predictability and performance of the permitting process. So that went into what we have as uh, the Environmental Review Improvement Fund. And that is basically our operating budget, but also our kind of resources that we use to support agencies and state local governments and tribal entities to engage and improve on the overall permitting process. So this initial $155 million that was announced was really focused on the immediate needs of our agencies as they grapple with the sudden influx of permitting applications that are resulting from the signature investments of the IIJA and the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act. So as we look across all of our agencies and as they engage on all of these large infrastructure projects, those applications are coming in at a volume that is unprecedented. And we have so many projects before us that we need to ensure that our agencies are effectively and adequately equipped to ensure that they can perform their functions appropriately and be timely in their decision-making. So this $155 million that we are putting out is really focused on staff support, uh, ensuring they have the human capital available to manage this influx of applications. We have a few millions that are going towards IT tools, but that really is kind of the focus of future investments. This initial investment was Primarily, it's like 80%, 85% of it was going strictly towards just staffing, uh, just making sure we have the right ologists, you know, biologists or ecologists or whatever that we need to do bird surveys or whale surveys or wetland delineation or, you know, folks that do mineral rights and ensuring that we're studying uh, mineral rights agreements to help these construction operation plans for critical mineral mining to move them forward quicker. So it runs the full gambit of uh, our infrastructure sectors that are covered by the Permitting Council, but it is really focused on the people at this point. Got it. And this is then going divided among the 12 bureaus, agencies, and in some cases, whole departments that are part of the council. That's correct. All agencies did not receive funding. Uh, many agencies also received funding directly from the Inflation Reduction Act to support environmental review. So the agencies that actually received funds in this tranche were the Department of Interior and many of its sub-bureaus, Bureau of Land Management, Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, also the Department of Commerce with the NTIA, which does uh, broadband work, as well as the CHIPS office, which is doing semiconductor work, and then NOAA, uh, which is responsible for Section 7 consultations under the Endangered Species Act, but also marine mammal protection, to ensure that they have the right people available to do those studies and do those consultations. The EPA also received funds for carbon capture sequestration projects. The ACHP, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, received funds to hire new staff to just build the capacity for 106 consultations, which is their primary statute. The Department of Agriculture and Forest Service and Rural Utility Development Program also received funds, as well as the Department of Homeland Security. So 
We had many, if not most, of our agencies that received funds, but not all. The process was really set up to ensure that we identify the agencies with the most immediate needs and then target the investments so that we would have measurable improvements on the permitting timelines. And so we had negotiations and discussions with the agencies to ensure that the money was going where it would be most needed and best spent. We're speaking with Eric Badel. He is executive director of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council. And it's great when guests are right on top of all the details like that. So we, we appreciate that rundown. And what do we know about the nature of the projects? I mean, this is not all windmills and solar farms, sounds like. No. So there are two different types of kind of funds that were provided. We have some that are directed primarily at supporting the permitting for the projects that are covered under FAST 41. So our statute that authorizes us to extend coverage to certain types of infrastructure projects that are posted on the permitting dashboard, we have some funds that are going to agencies that will help them specifically to support permitting review for those types of projects. But then there's other money that is going to a broader kind of general improvement and over 100 million of the 155 is going towards just general improvement of permitting for infrastructure projects. And that's not bound to the covered sectors necessarily that are in FAST 41, but rather, you know, all of the work that we are doing and all of the uh, infrastructure that needs to be built, we want to make sure that we have the capacity to expand or improve our, our, our efficiency on those projects as well. Just as an aside, we should point out, I think, as you did in our last interview, the council itself is not a creature of the infrastructure bill, but you go back actually to the Obama administration. That's correct. So we were created in 2015 as part of the Fixing America's Surface Transportation Act. It was an add-on, Title 41, to that piece of legislation that created the agency, which is why we call this the Fast 41 process. You know, we're still a very young agency comparatively to our peers, but you know, we are trying to develop this agency into an entity that is very forward-focused, service-focused, customer-oriented, and the use of these $350 million that Congress provided us to improve the overall performance of permitting is, is a critical tool to ensure that the agencies have the resources they need to do the work necessary to deliver on these infrastructure projects. So basically, you close the gap between shovel-ready and permit-ready. That's one way to look at it. Uh, <laughs> I, I think... We are wanting to move these projects through the process effectively, and we're not cutting corners with the process, but rather just making sure that there's enough butts and seats, really, to be able to handle the, the workload. That you was know, my next question, actually. Yeah. Is there some process improvement or some way of changing things, or is the money just going to add people to brute force through old processes that are inefficient inherently? I think it's a multi-pronged approach and kind of an all-of-government approach. The easy response is to add more people to handle the influx, but a longer term and more efficient potentially response is to improve processes, improve technology to automate and to streamline some of these routine application reviews. So you know, this is a, an initial 155 million that's going out to the agencies to, to increase the human capital, but we are also taking a look at what are our long-term investments for information technology that will allow us to do our jobs better and more efficiently? How can we incorporate artificial intelligence into some of the initial intake of applications? How can we improve interoperability among the agencies to share information? The Council on Environmental Quality and the Permitting Council and GSA are actually hosting an IT summit towards the end of the month where we're going to convene a number of agencies and as well as external stakeholders 
to talk through like what's the realm of the possible where are the opportunities for us to make really targeted investments that's going to move the needle measurably long term you know hiring more people is is absolutely essential but it's a band-aid when you take a longer view of improving the permitting process there is so much more that we could do with people if we take out some of the routine activities and and actually you know leverage their brain power sure. to be thinking creative and innovatively let automation take care of some of the other stuff i imagine there is you know speaking of automation and artificial intelligence there might be a way of speeding up things simply by triage for example if someone already has a power line and they want to add five cables to it but otherwise there's no other change to the landscape or anything that's one thing on the other hand if you want to clear 50 acres of forest and put up 10 windmills that's something else entirely that that's absolutely true the environmental permitting regime you know it's really focused on the statutes look for impacts to particular resources and nepa the national environmental policy act is the umbrella statute you know tries to ensure that agencies take account for what their environmental effects are going to be for their investments and disclose those and and make a decision based on uh, public engagement and, and public input but that is the complexity of the review and the and the length of time that it takes to get through all of those approvals is really based on the complexity and the impact of the project uh, generally. So if you're adding lines to an existing transmission line, if you're just upgrading or adding additional capacity to it, that's a much lower lift than a greenfield development of a new transmission line that's going to cross multiple states and you know different counties and different biomes and whatever else there may be that's going to have uh, multiple permitting approvals, the alignment of those over time to ensure that if you get through state X and state Y has more difficult processes, if they're not aligned, then you could get up to the border of state Y and then you'd be sunk. And so making sure that we are working cross borders to look at the big picture for these projects is absolutely critical. Eric Badel is executive director of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. 
you. your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.